welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed To Your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are uh, in the wonderful world of Ezekiel that you've enjoyed, I'm sure, reading this past week. At least these chapters it's a little felt brighter. a little brighter, a little more hopeful. Bigger there's, picture. And there's language that you're like, oh, that sounds familiar and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, so we, we start off once again. Uh, well, we start off still on the negative side, but we're certainly going to change that really quick, uh, where the prophecy is against Israel's shepherds and um, that there are people that care for themselves. So this, the context here in Ezekiel Ezekiel is is the the nation has been scattered. They're now in Babylon. Jerusalem has fallen, and Ezekiel certainly blamed all of Israel at some point for the sins and brokenness. But here, it's very pointed. the The shepherds were, were a major part of the problem. The leaders, which is true of so much in Scripture, but the the leaders who were charged with leading these people had become selfish, went after their own gain, and just really didn't care about the flock. And so uh, the language here, as I as I just kind of stated, th- there's familiar language. And Jesus comes along and starts with similar accusations of the pe- the leaders in Israel at the time talking. I mean, he'd look out on the people and say, like, my people are like a sheep without a shepherd. He's picking up an Ezekiel language. Now, if you're a leader at that time, basically you're being accused of being like the leaders at the worst point in all of Israel's history. And so Jesus is connecting you to that. So there's a whole lot of reasons why the leaders were not such fans of Jesus. And some of the language here around the, the condemnation of the shepherds and Jesus using that um, is part of that. It's just absolutely provocative. Yeah. We see here self-focused leadership and what that looks like. And most of us have had a supervisor or a teacher or a parent who is supposed to be responsible for you, but ends up neglecting you for their own gain or comfort or promotion or whatever. And this is a pattern of behavior that is somewhat acceptable in the world. But if we are to live for and seek the interests of others above ourselves, we need to step back and just consider that the way of the godly focuses on caring for others and meeting others' needs before our own. But then we get sort of God's answer to it all. Yeah, and that's that in the, in the lack of uh, good shepherds, uh, God is taking the role of, of the, the, the great shepherd, the one who's going to come in and gather his sheep and feed them and care for them. Uh, once again, language that Jesus will actually equate himself. I mean, there's no doubt that the gospel writers are, are very explicitly equating Jesus with God. Any, anybody that argues with you that there's no explicit language of Jesus as God in the scriptures just doesn't understand what the writers are doing. And so um, Yahweh sort of gets replaced throughout the New Testament in sort of the shepherd idea that God's going to return. He's going to shepherd his people. There's going to be, a, in some ways, a judgment of sheep and goats and things like that. And the fattened sheep who have taken advantage of the weak sheep, um, they've treated them poorly. They're going to be judged for that. And so um, we get some of this language of, of God kind of taking on the role uh, of the shepherd of the people. So we're getting to step into this messianic picture. And this is why what Jesus says in John 10 about how he's a good shepherd is so controversial. Uh, but we see a need and an opportunity for us to cry out for a Messiah. God himself will shepherd the sheep and care for his people in ways that the leaders he appointed did not. Yeah, if, if scripture is going to teach you anything is that leaders are going to fail you. Um, now, you hope you have good, faithful leaders, and, and a majority of the time they are as obedient as they can be, and in their falls they are repentant and still going after the heart of God, but um, that that ultimately 
your trust is not in your leaders, but your trust is in Jesus and, and, and the greater shepherd than any sort of shepherds God may install. And so, um, that's, that's a really important lesson, uh, that, that will help people, I think, navigate the crisis of what to do when leaders fall. If, if your hope is in that leader, it's going to tear you apart. But if your hope ultimately was in Christ as, as the true shepherd, um, that should change some, how some of those crises play out in your heart. And then uh, we get language of, of a covenant of peace, uh, sort of this new idea of, of this peaceful new covenant that will come one day. This, this language, sometimes in Ezekiel, sometimes there's a little bit of parsing out of like, all right, are we talking about when they return to the land? sort of post-Babylon, we talk about something greater. And and here, especially because we're talking about the 12 tribes, the restoration of Israel, and the fact that like, I mean, we never find out about the 10 tribes from the north. Um, the the Judah and then sort of the, the language of, of the southern kingdom, there's definitely restoration. People can still identify who they are as sort of Judeans, um, but we never see the restoration of the north. And so uh, I think Ezekiel is, is using language around a greater context, a greater mm-hmm. sort of idea that that there'll be this time of peace. And, and I would argue, uh, coming from Acts and into the New Testament, um, there, there's definitely some language of Jesus ushering in the sort of new covenant of peace. Yeah, so we definitely see it fulfilled in Christ, like Chris just said, as we read the New Testament, as you read it and you come across passages around sheep like John 10 or Jesus leaving the 99 for the one, reflect back to this passage or even Psalm 23 and think about what Christ is illustrating in this whole sheep shepherd concept that really continues throughout scripture. Yeah, I mean, even even Hebrews will talk about this new idea of, of almost how the covenant brings this new kind of peace uh, that's obtained through Jesus's blood. And so there's there's language of this covenant that's spoken of Ezekiel and Hebrews and others. And so, yeah, it is all over the place. And then uh, we transition back into sort of um, condemnation prophecies. Uh, and it's a really against Mount Seir, which is in Edom. And this is much more directed at the, the crowd that's in Edom, which of all the nations was one of the worst. Uh, they helped Babylon. They cheered for, against Israel. Uh, and even in some ways are tra- starting to, to kind of have a, a, a land grab of the, the fall of, of the northern and southern kingdoms. And even if you remember back, Edom comes from Esau. And, and so the whole Jacob and Esau story, which is Israel versus Edomites, um, the, the idea that Jacob kind of uh, stole in some ways the inheritance, um, this might be sort of Esau, the, the Edomites trying to reverse that and claim, though God's like, no, no, this is these are my people. You don't get to claim this. And so God has a, a very harsh response uh, to this crowd uh, against these Edomites. Yeah. But then we swing to the other side where we hear about a prophecy to the mountains of Israel and he announces the restoration. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's still the, the, the these nations that had laughed at Israel are going to receive judgment, but there's going to be this future restoration of the mountains of Israel, a repopulating of the land by returning exiles. So when we consider this idea of flourishing, this promise here illustrates that God's design is that people and communities will flourish and bring flourishing to others. The mountains of Israel, it says, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people. True flourishing extends farther and farther into more and more people. But then there's interjected this little reminder of 
Israel's problems in the past saying, look, like we are here and we're still going through all this judgment, all this kind of stuff because you had become corrupt because the land itself had become corrupt because you were corrupt. That this, like this land is the place of God's blessing, including the temple, but the land itself has been corrupt and needs to be judged. It needs to be purged. And he's, and God's reminding them, I'm doing this because of my name. Like I care about my name being holy or the, the Hebrew term, the Kedusha Hashem, um, that for God's name to, to be made holy. And so, um, that, that's sort of the, the drive here and, and name, as we've covered in the past, name is connected to your reputation, your fame, your identity. And so, um, God really cares that his name is distinct and holy. And he wants this name to be distinct and holy, not only to the people of Israel, but to all nations. And Israel was to represent God well within their own communities and to all people, and they didn't. This is a reminder to us that we are the light of the nations. We are the ambassadors of Christ in all the places we go. So as we live as followers of Christ, we need to represent Christ and God's name among others wherever we are. Yeah. And we get... um once again, promises of sort of a, a future state where God's going to put his spirit within his people and stuff like that. And, and, um, it's hard. Uh, once again, you're sometimes deciphering, okay, like, is this, is this fulfilled after the return from Babylon? Is this fulfilled at Christ? Is this fulfilled sometime in the major future? Um, and, and all those things are sometimes, I mean, I, I would argue particularly in a lot of the stuff with Ezekiel, they're sort of a, uh, yes, but not, not totally, or um, the the idea that it's been fulfilled somewhat, but not to its fullness, and um, and, and so there's language around. Um um, yes, God has put his spirit now. I mean, we see the New Testament writers pick up on this in 2 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 10 or next to this idea that the spirit's being poured out in humanity. But then we see language of like, and everybody's going to start living in peace and they're going to take take back or live and dwell and flourish in the land. And whether we're totally there yet or not in our story, but, um, but this whole spirit coming within us and, and God sort of doing his, his this sort of change in how he's operated with his people goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 30. I mean, you go back to the Torah mm-hmm. and there's this language around what happens to the restoration of Israel after it's been scattered and like it's literally spelled out and, and that God's going to perform at that point this new circumcision on their heart so that they may live. And so there's been this theme that's kind of pointing forward that God will eventually make a change with how he pours out his spirit, with how he takes hearts of stone and makes them hearts of flesh, and how he circumcises hearts so that people may may live, may have this aliveness for the first time. And so um, there's, once again, Ezekiel's kind of hitting on that motif, saying, look, there's going to be this pouring out of the spirit, and I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to come at some point in the future. This idea of newness of heart is really essential for us to understand. We don't need a new plan of action in order to live a different way, but we need an absolutely new heart and a new spirit so we can be changed from the inside out. And when we have the heart of God within us through salvation, when we are sprinkled clean by Christ's blood, we can live in such a way that the people and the places around us will explode with life. Yep. And then we get uh, probably one of the most preached on passages, I would argue, out of this book, uh, this idea of this valley of dry bones. And um, in the language of, of Ezekiel, it's a return of the house, uh, the whole house of Israel from death to life. It, it definitely carries this idea of a national mm-hmm. resurrection. Um, and and remember, I mean, as we walk through some of those um, the condemnations of the other nations, uh, they often ended with this idea that the people will be driven down into Sheol, they're going to be dead, and they're going to stay dead. There's sort of this permanence to it. So I think God turning to Ezekiel and being like, um, what about Israel? 
Ezekiel, do you think I can restore Israel? And I think that's the context here. And Ezekiel's like, no, all right, God, whatever you can do, whatever you want to do. And, um, and, and God uses Ezekiel to speak through prophetic word. He sort of has this sort of, um, almost like recreation story. It puts the, the, the Ruach, the spirit, the breath into, uh, the, what has come up out of the ground, just like we get in Genesis. And so there, there's some of this imagery and it's so fast. I mean, Sarah and I were just talking about this before we start. What I think Ezekiel's doing, and I would argue most um, almost like apocalyptic type literature does, is take sort of mm, things that are in in their unknown and very present landscape. So um, whether it's uh, certain kings like the king of Tyre and Pharaoh, whether it's um, certain situations like cap- captivity and Babylon and stuff like that, and and then overlays. Um, and you, or at least uses and utilizes those things to talk about something that's greater and probably more cosmic. And, and there's constantly that, that play out in the storyline. So we went from the destruction of the little temple in Jerusalem at the beginning of the book to this image of the fact that God is still in a temple, but the temple is grandiose. It's cosmic. It's movable. And we talk about the king of Tyre, but then he uses language to, to talk about a greater evil and a greater anti-God force. And, and, and we see that constantly and it, and it gets into like how to interpret this. So like, are we just talking about the nation of Israel? Is there a greater conversation around resurrection? Is there some more cuss? cosmic idea that's supposed to be played out. And and I would argue constantly in Ezekiel, you have that. It's as if he's telling a much more grandiose story by using elements that would have been very known to them that are not as grandiose um, as sort of connections and metaphors and, and um, simile throughout the book. Um, and so you, you got to deal with that. And when you deal with revelation, we're going to deal with that same issue. It's like, all right, these are known things to tell a greater story of what might be going on. And so, yeah. So as we think of this Valley of dry bones, one of the things that we can connect it to is the story of Lazarus or of course the resurrection of Christ. We see Christ through his actions in John, uh, yeah. in this case, using the book of Ezekiel to display that he is God. He's the son of God, and he's the one who will bring life out of death. Yep. Um, and then the statement that I will be their God, they shall be my people. This is certainly uh, not the, the, the sort of two sticks stuck together of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Uh, this is not something fulfilled in sort of the post-exilic times. I think this has a greater idea. And I would actually argue Luke in Acts 2 and, and how he talks about the nations coming, gathering together, hearing the word, going back out to the nations, blessing the nations. Um, and not only that, but the Edenic language of like being fruitful and multiply. I, I would argue um, this absolutely from the New Testament writers, uh, they're, they're making a connection points to say, what Ezekiel was talking about? That is now this moment. That is now our time. So God has promised this covenant of peace. He's expressed his concern for his name, promised new spirits, promised life out of death, and then promises to unite his people under his rule. And this covenant of peace comes through Christ. We don't only see the northern and the southern kingdoms, or we don't see them coming together to worship God, but we see Jews and Gentiles coming together through Christ. So consider this promise of God dwelling even with them and among man, like we see in John 1, where it talks about how Jesus tabernacled among us. And then we see it again in Revelation 21. So yeah, we are pulling a lot of things together, but I think Ezekiel here is is meaning to, I mean, he doesn't necessarily know what he's doing when he's writing it, but he's teaching us these big picture things of what we understand on this side of the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. And we keep going with sort of those big pictures ideas. We get this identification of this character Gog, which um, 
No one historically has been able to go. Clearly, this is this character. Um, there's always guesses, but Gog feels like as as Ezekiel's riding this personification of evil, and and Ezekiel sort of brought in even evil, evil elements of characters he's already listed, and and there's even some of the Leviathan language and this sort of anti-god sort of force connected to Gog, this sort of this anti-god king or ruler among the nations, and um, and then we get identification of cities and all this kind of stuff. Some of it. Uh, all coming from Genesis 10, which is a list of the nations that are not in the lineage of Israel, the sort of surrounding nations, and that that this Gog is going to pull people from all these different groups. And, and they're listed almost by direction. There's groups from the north, there's groups from the south, there's groups from the east, groups from the west, which the writer of Revelation is going to pick up on and use <clears throat> as well. <clears throat> but this this Gog, Leviathan, the Day of the Lord, all this stuff has already been sort of interwoven throughout Ezekiel. And so there's there's this anti-God force that's going to gather uh, the nations um, and and work against God, but he's ultimately going to be dealt with through mm-hmm. hailstones of all things. And and um, it's interesting because John will absolutely pick – John literally names Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 um, to, to connect these dots. Now, we'll talk about Revelation so much more when we get there, um, but there's also going to be a lot to say about it. And so it's so fascinating to me, John picks up on this anti-God character of Gog, who ultimately is defeated by God, and then uses this story in 38 and 39 in these two major sections of Revelation that most people split apart by a thousand-year reign of Jesus. And so John, at least in his utilization of this text and and how he thinks about Ezekiel, doesn't doesn't disconnect them from from this thousand year gap, and so there's some interpretive pieces or ways to interpret Revelation. Maybe we'll cover uh, some of that, uh, all the different positions when we cover Revelation. But um, if you know your Ezekiel, it kind of blows up at least one of those major theories of of understanding what John might be doing and how he's utilizing this section about Gog uh, and how to interpret that. And so I know we're jumping into Revelation and you haven't read it yet, but. Um, remember remember this talk and remember sort of um or, and maybe go back to the section when you encounter that to go okay what was ezekiel doing again and uh, we've already read that let's 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 readdress gog so then god reiterates his plan in sending israel into exile but promises to restore and this makes me think about what we read in first peter last week about how god is always faithful even when we are faithless and that sounds like Second Timothy, yeah. uh, not First Peter, but maybe it's both of those. <laughs> anyway, we can trust God to show up and to work even even when the circumstances feel dire. Yep. And then we start getting into this next section of the book, and you only have to do one chapter this week, but this vision of a new temple and the temple being restored. And um, and not only that, but you have a sort of supernatural guide to this bronze character, which is likely an angelic force because it feels supernatural. Um lead Ezekiel through basically these building plans of the new temple. Uh, and um, it's hard. Uh, some will take a very literal understanding of this, of these are blueprints. We need to restore the temple someday. Um, but at the same time, it, it feels grandiose. It feels greater than any other temple they've built in their history. And even right after this, we will find Israel return and not follow any of these blueprints. Even even early on, it seems like they might have taken a bit of a metaphorical understanding of these things. Um, and, and it's important to remember, we started this book with the lesson that God is not confined to the building, but 
has a sort of cosmic temple space that God lives in. And so um, for, for this description of the temple to be drawn out, might the greater message for Ezekiel be that God is he, he's going to, in some ways, return and dwell mm-hmm. again. Um, and, and not only will the people dwell in the land again, but God will dwell with them. And the land's going to be cosmic in scope. And in some ways, this temple is greater. And, and, and all the pieces of it are so much more grandiose than anything we've seen before. And, and I think that's much more the point. So we start out in Ezekiel, early on in Ezekiel in chapters 8 through 11, we see Ezekiel tour the temple and it's filled with abominations and perversions and things like that. But then we finish the book of Ezekiel with a new tour of the temple. This is a redeemed and restored vision of the temple. And like Chris says, Ezekiel is emphasizing here God's longing to dwell with and among his people. All right. Let's take a bit of a whiplash between apocalyptic literature to epistles, but uh, let's jump into Second Timothy 2. Um, and and uh, Paul right here, right away, is just reminding Timothy, look, I taught you these things. I, I want you to teach other people. Be like a, a soldier who's seeking to please their commanding officer, an athlete seeking to discipline their body, or a farmer working hard in the field for a harvest. Like, be Paul uh, is encouraging sort of the, the underlying theme of those different characters, like be willing to commit yourself for the thing and sacrifice for, for the greater goal. Um, and, and he points out Christ is like that. He saw the goal set before him of, of the joy set before him, the salvation of his people, and he was willing to suffer to sacrifice for that goal. And then Paul even connects it to himself. And that's why I'm in prison. I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice and suffer for the goal at hand. And so, um, and then he gives us kind of, very short but really rich and dense uh, little poem uh, that God's going to be faithful and and if we have died with him if we have endured with him God will be faithful and and as long as we don't deny him that that seems to be the one caveat so Paul's example here he uses a few of a soldier and an athlete or a farmer and all of those are to show single-minded focus on a specific goal and it is to remind Timothy of what he and we really are working toward so following Christ isn't really a hobby that we hop in and out of but the work of following Christ and even ministry to others should be approached like a soldier approaches going to battle or like an athlete approaches a competition or a farmer focuses on growing crops we all have things we work toward whether we're training for a marathon or trying to get a promotion at work or paying off student loans or whatever it is, what would it look like to pursue and follow Christ with the same diligence that you show in other areas of your life? And, and in some ways, still picking up off that text, the, the sort of stay focused on the main things mm-hmm. like the gospel and living it out, uh, that we don't get caught up in the secondary, um, not to keep going with the farmer metaphor, but don't get caught up in the weeds. Don't get caught up in in sort of the, the things that... that um, become distracting. Like if an athlete doesn't think about the goal of winning the race, but gets caught up in particulars around like his body or something like, like you, you lose the point of why you are in it in the first place. And I think that's what Timothy's or Paul's instructions, Timothy are really after they're those who are preaching weird things and they're maybe the distortion of the resurrection, but, but don't, don't get distracted in sort of these quarrelsome little debates. Like, be holy and and set yourself apart and focus on the main things and um and, and don't be quarrelsome. Correct people with gentleness, instruct them, but but make sure that you are still going after the main goal. 
We talk a lot about open-handed and closed-handed issues with kind of within our community. And I just wonder if Paul here is specifically emphasizing the open-handed issues. And that's why the reminder is to correct gently. These are not issues related to salvation and eternal life, but it could just be complicated tensions that we can't quite figure out scripturally. And there is a place for some of these discussions to happen in theological realms or seminaries or whatever. But when we get so focused on what I would call the minors or these open-handed things, we can neglect some of the most essential aspects of our faith, which is righteousness and faith and love and peace. And so we need to live for those things more than we need to live uh, or choose some sort of hill to die on around an open-handed issue. Yeah. When people joke about making sure you major uh, you don't major in the minors. That doesn't mean you don't still minor in the minors, <laughs> but you got to make sure you still major in the majors. And and here are the things that are essential. Here are the things that are still worthwhile to talk about. Correct. Mm-hmm. Make sure we understand scripture. Pursue those things. Uh, but um, there are greater things at hand than um, some of the secondary debates. And, and so um, P, uh, Paul speaks of sort of where sort of the culture, the world around them is going. As Peterson will say, there's going to be those who um, make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they are animals. And and Paul's simply being real here, basically to Timothy, saying, look, there's going to be those who come along, and they may talk a good game. They might even sort of perform. They might have the outward appearance of a good game. But inside, they're as selfish as can be. They're about self-gratification, self-promotion, self-exaltation. Um, all The list he has can all be defined in sort of this category of self. And they're deceitful, and they take advantage of people. People. And, and in the context, at least for Paul, uh, particularly of some down and out women, this, this sort of women in, in rough spots, um, you kinda, they kind of prey off of them. And they're like these Egyptian priests that just trick people, but they really have nothing nothing of substance. And Paul's encouraging Timothy to see right through these people. Make sure you see them as they are. The thing here to be aware of is that a lot can be twisted into having the appearance of godliness, but without the power, the imagery that I, of these false teachers creeping into households and capturing weak women who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions really sticks with me. I see this happening, this sneaking happen, even in modern day through social media, through the books and magazines we read, through the TV shows we watch. We need to be on guard about these behaviors that can be cloaked or justified as godly when they are not. And then uh, we get uh, one of the more famous passages from this book. This is this uh, connection to um, scripture being breathed out by God. And Paul is encouraging Timothy here. He's like, Timothy, you've seen every aspect of my life. You've seen how I've lived. You've seen my sufferings. You've seen um, how I've walked in certain things. Like he, he reminds him of all these things. And he's like, look, like as a follower of Jesus, like this is part of your life, including the suffering. And, and, and not only that, but you've even seen how others have tried to take advantage either by 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 um maybe speaking about my suffering or the message itself they've they've tried to lead people astray and so timothy focus on the message of god like scripture like and historically here yes we are predominantly talking about the old testament but um, the divine breathed story of god like that's that is all you need not these quarrelsome debates like that is what you need to teach to correct to to challenge about the wrong way of living and to lead people into righteousness so that they can actually do good 
deeds. And, um, and, and often we connect this, this section to the idea of sufficiency of scripture, that it, it is there to equip us for, for all that we need. And that's not to say that there's not other resources and books and commentaries and authors uh, that are helpful, but, um, scripture and the Holy Spirit is, is the basis of what we need to lead a godly life. Like we are able to lead a godly life based upon those criteria alone. Authors may help us understand scripture, explain meanings and things like that, that are great. They're helpful. Um, there's never a reason to despise that, but, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a sufficiency uh, to Scripture to, to make us more like Christ, um, and and to do that corporately too. Um, I think sometimes we downplay the role of corporate um, shared uh, study and formation of Scripture together. That. Um, like the idea of individually always sitting down and having your quiet time, like that is a very modern Western sometimes understanding of how we approach scripture. Uh, and if you're not doing scripture study, that's also in community, then, then we're doing it in a very, very Western way. Um, that, that there's a, a goodness of sitting down. I know this is not on the topic, but there's a goodness to sitting down with others and, and, and being refined and letting the word equip us in community together too. And this instruction around scripture applies to Old Testament as well. It applies to Ezekiel, it applies to the passages of scripture that we find to be the least engaging, shall I say. So trust God to equip you through his word, even when we're reading through things that don't seem fruitful. There is an inner work that's being done. Yeah. And so because God will return one day and usher in his kingdom, the instruction for Paul here to Timothy, go proclaim, do the work of evangelists, like teach all that I've taught you to others, no matter what's going on, no matter what the season, no matter what the context, be ready to go and teach and, and, and to proclaim this. And and he reminds of too, like, People are going to find teachers that they're going to like. Like it's a, this warning that that make them feel good about themselves. That teach them like in ways that they can just go after their own desires and passions. And, and we've hit on this plenty in the podcast, but but this idea is just still so common. Um, I hope you're sort of a bit weary of our reminder of this, but but the, yeah, like there's a whole money and in making industry um, where um, to to simply write about people getting what your passions and desires already are. And you want to be able to sleep with whoever you want. Look, there are pseudo Christians that will lead you astray in that. And you want to give away less of your money and be a little more greedy. Uh, we got a book for you over here. And you want to be able to not really do the hard work of being holy and participating in the life of the church. Uh, we'll have people that will talk about being de-churched and you being selfish and on your own. It's it's there. And and watch how. That's what Timothy or Paul's really after of going, look, like people have their own selfish desires. And there will be plenty of teachers that will be around that will teach them to go after that. And it's totally fine. And don't be that. Paul has suffered tremendously as we look on his life. And he spent a large majority of his ministry in prison, but he doesn't regret it. And he continues to hold fast to Christ and declares that he loves Christ's appearing. I don't know that I can say this about my life, but I want to be able to. Yep. Proverbs 26, uh, we get a few uh, good one-liners and teaching about fools. And yeah. sluggards, yeah, don't give them the time of day. Yeah. Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you yourself will be just like them. The sort of like, don't engage fools in some of their quarrelsome debates, as we've already on just Facebook saw. On or Twitter. Tim yeah, there's certainly... Proverbs 26 should be read anytime if somebody wants to add a comment on Facebook. So, uh, and then Psalm uh, 119, uh, which we've already covered multiple sections of, uh, cause it's so grandiose. Uh, yeah. yeah. When I read through it this time, I read it from 
the perspective of me making it my prayer, but I also read it from the perspective as Christ as the word. And that was kind of a cool insight. Yeah. And um, Psalm 19 certainly is this grandiose Psalm within the book of Psalms, but uh, this opening section almost has a Psalm one feel to it to begin with. Like blesses a man who follows God's instructions, who chews on God's word, who doesn't listen to the scoffers and things like that. It's like a tree bearing fruit. And you get some of this language, uh, I think in the beginning of Psalm 119 and then Psalm 11. So we see a comparison of how different God is than we are. We see a lot of this in the Psalms, which is great. God is holy, he's righteous, and he promises to be our refuge. And that's just an amazing gift. Yeah, it, it feels like there's like this opening, like trusting God. And then there's like bad advice, whether it's the person, it's the author giving himself his own bad advice or perspective or other people. But then a reminder, look, God, you're the righteous judge and you help the persecuted and almost this like coaching moment away from the bad advice. All right, next week. So as you continue reading Ezekiel and start in on Daniel, I'd encourage you to, of course, read in whatever standard translation, but also maybe spend some time listening through it or reading through it in a more understandable translation, like the message or new living translation. Sometimes it just helps us take in these heavy kind of repetitive statements a little bit better. And in the New Testament, you're going to just spend a day in Jude. So it's going to be a really quick read. But sorry, there's a if you hear noise in the background, um, don't don't miss, though, that there is a lot of really great stuff to find in Jude. So look for some repeated words and see if you can track down some themes in the book of Jude. And so for the Old Testament, uh, for me, um, uh, sometimes I, I generally really like people to read through books before they get extra content, but gosh, I think the Bible project is super helpful for the book of Daniel. It gives you a little bit of a better overview of the book and what the author might be doing. Um, so if you want to do that, if it'll help you sometimes digest a little bit of the book, um, I do recommend at some point and maybe read through Daniel, then watch it. I, I don't know, but um, it, it becomes a helpful supplement, particularly for a book that says, sometimes hard to, to parse out as Daniel. Uh, and then New Testament, uh, I, in my mind, I've certainly been kicking around a lot about how first century, particularly Jews interpret texts. And Jude is just this unique book in, in the New Testament. It's short. Yes. It gets kind of forgotten about, but it has elements that are very similar to what uh, is called Midrash, which is um, ways that um, not only Jewish people had taken uh, examples and stories and, and sort of modernized them to help to explain not only those stories, but to explain in their context. And uh, I think Jude's doing that uh, multiple times. So see where Jude is employing sort of old analogies and stories into very modern things, or even these odd ideas with Michael and stuff like that um, into how he's trying to teach this crowd. And so um, look out for them, see where you might find them. I think they become these little treasures to find within the book of Jude, which is a little bit how the Midrash works. And so um, that's it for this week. Thanks y'all. Thanks. Thanks.